Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my strictly partially invariant friend, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about the critical and often unmet assumptions underlying the use of measured variables at multiple time points, whether for simple analyses like tests of means or more complex analyses like modeling individual growth. Along the way, we also mention following your blocker, Pascal's wager, Wikipedia empathy, ham sandwich syllogisms, flying cattle cars, Kennedy babies, Costco bathroom scales, Spirit Airlines, expecting you to bring wine, crying about broccoli, the Audi A-series, dead raccoon smell, Joe Walsh, Greg's abs, copy-paste measurement models, Orlando versus Fort Lauderdale, moles on spring break, and disturbing artwork. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. One thing I really like is pulling some concept out of one place and applying it to day-to-day life, mostly because I'm so horrible at making decisions and navigating day-to-day life that I kind of need a framework (laughs) to make sense of it. Uh For example, a very good friend of mine in grad school, his name was Mick. He was a fullback in college. For those of you who don't know American football, a fullback typically lines up behind the quarterback and will often be handed the football to run. But more often than not, the fullback, who is a big muscular person, Hmm. blocks for the smaller, faster halfback. (laughs) Notice we have a fullback, a halfback, and a quarterback. Right? Did you Uh ever think about the mathematics of football? (laughs) Mick had this whole life philosophy of follow your blocker. Nothing would frustrate him more in a game when he would run forward and take a horrific hit. Oh, yeah. The guy with the ball behind him changed his mind and decided to go another direction. (laughs) So Mick had this wonderful life philosophy of follow your blocker, Uh whether that be physically, when you're driving, when you're in line, when you're at the airport, whatever you're doing is follow your blocker because they are clearing the way. But it's also intellectually. It's also emotionally. Who's out in front of you Mm -hmm. so that you have a clear pathway? I like it. Almost 30 years later, I still in day-to-day life think about, I got to follow my blocker. All right. So that's a general life philosophy. And I will tell you right now, thank you to Mick. I am going to use that a lot now. Is there anything statistical that you use that you are able to import into your life that serves that same purpose? We know that I'm a congenital counter. I count, (laughs) I arrange, I think about all possible outcomes. And one thing that we live and die in statistics with is our little two by two. Mm. Is the null hypothesis true in the population? Yes or no. Mm -hmm. Do we decide the null hypothesis is true based on our sample data? Yes or no. Mm -hmm. And our entire life, if you're not Roy Levy, (laughs) centers around those four cells. Is it a correct decision? Is it incorrect? We've talked a lot about this. But you can apply that to should you worry about something, yes or no? Mm -hmm. Do you worry about something, (laughs) yes or no? And look at all four unique combinations. You got four cells. You have cells. Yeah. 
I'm worried about something. I should worry. All right, that's a correct decision. I don't worry about something. I shouldn't worry. That's a correct decision. Uh Just like in quant, we don't care about the diagonal. It's the off diagonals (laughs) that make life really, really interesting, which is I'm not worried at all. But it turns out I really should have been. Uh Or I worry, 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 and then there was no reason at all. So, yes, I can apply the off diagonals to worry in day-to-day life. So this, to me, reminds me of Pascal's wager. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, right? I use this as an example all the time. Right, right. So across the top, we have there is a God, there is no God. And down the side, we have do I believe in God or do I not believe in God? And what was Pascal's final determination? Yeah, that probabilistically, it is more advantageous to believe in God, because if you believe in God and God's not there, okay, it's not a huge consequence. But if you fail to believe in God and God is there, oh, that's a bad thing. So ultimately, the best outcome for him was to believe in God. Probabilistically, I think that's how he determined it. Exactly. is a tiny probability multiplied by infinite time. That was yeah. his main point. Yeah. So that's Pascal's wager. In the context of worry, this is Curran's wager, right? <laughs> we have four cells. Yeah. And part of this gets me in trouble because I have, in the past, been identified as someone who is not supportive, or at least has the ability to not be supportive. What? And it's always... Fr- <laughs> Shut up. I'm talking. Shocker. <laughs> it partly relates to this two by two because... When somebody is flying in turbulence and they say, oh, I'm so nervous, I'm so nervous, my response is, why now? (laughs) We're six miles off the ground flying 600 miles an hour. You should have been nervous before you boarded. When a grad student says, oh, I distributed my dissertation and I'm so nervous, And I'm like, you should have been nervous a year ago when I was talking to you about timeline, (laughs) right? That's when you should have been nervous because you could have done something about it. I'm sending you a link to Wikipedia on empathy. So just when you have a chance, if you want to click on that. Uh Uh-huh. And that was what your wife shared with you? (laughs) I haven't opened it yet, but let me know know it's there. I appreciate that. All right, so you got the two by two with things you shouldn't worry about and don't worry about, that's not a big deal. Things you should worry about and do worry about, that's, I guess, okay. So then what are the things that we don't worry about but we really should? I think we could talk about this all day in quant methods. Mm -hmm. What are things that we don't worry about, we don't pay attention to, we're either not aware of or we are aware and volitionally repress it? The big one that is increasingly keeping me up at night, and very, very few things keep me up at night, but it's measurement in longitudinal data analysis. Mm. There's a logical syllogism. I love logical syllogisms, especially when you have if A, then B, if B, then C, if C, then D, Mm -hmm. and therefore, by the transitive property, if A, then D, but it's something preposterous. Yes. They have a sandwich one. I don't know that one. Really? Uh, Yes, really. A ham sandwich is better than nothing. Nothing is better than eternal happiness. Ergo, a ham sandwich is better than eternal happiness. (laughs) That's a logical syllogism, right? Yes. Okay, good. So the one we're working with here is along the lines of you must collect longitudinal data to make stronger causal inferences. Given longitudinal data, we typically fit complex growth models. 
when fitting complex growth models, we cannot support the estimation of a fully latent model. If we cannot support the estimation of a fully latent model, we use a scale score. Therefore, if you collect longitudinal data, you must use a scale score. Oof. Well, that whole flyover state <laughs> kind of thing of going from New York to L.A. and suspecting something is below you, holy crapola. How did we jump from A to D and get to a mean score with a multi-million dollar data set? And what are the downstream costs of that? Oh, my gosh. And there are tons of assumptions throughout statistics that we just kind of turn a blind eye to and hope that everything will be okay. We've talked about those quite a bit. We even had an episode on measurement invariance specifically, but in the longitudinal context, things get complicated and people generally don't even think about it, right? When you've got a score at time one and a score at time two, and you want to compare those scores longitudinally, whether it's something as simple as a change from time one to time two, or something more complex as having those measures at more than two time points and trying to overlay some kind of growth model, Implicit in that is that it's okay to compare the scores from time one to time two or time one to time two to time three to time four. And there are conditions where it's just not okay. And what's funny is some of the early concerns about that appropriately focused on the unreliability of the difference score. Yeah. That the difference between two scores can be less reliable than either score individually. But there's actually much more at hand than just simple reliability. And I don't think we do students a favor when we begin teaching this at an introductory level because we kind of set up an unrealistic expectation where at least I, when introducing a two-time point model, will often talk about, well, let's say that you're evaluating a diet and you have weight and you have weight at time one and you have weight at time two and you have random assignment. Are you in the control group? Are you in the treatment group? And it's this nice, really tight example to get your head around baseline change, group comparisons and change. Yeah. But when you have something like weight and you have a good scale, not your crappy Costco right. scale <laughs> that you talked about, but if you have a good scale and no preposterous situations, these things don't apply. You have a highly reliable measure and weight at time one is no different than weight at time two. That's how we set it up. Yeah. But what about an eight item reading ability score and all bets are off? Yeah. So I want to introduce this issue in the context of something very, very simple. And that is just having a measure at time one and a measure at time two. And you mentioned turbulence in airlines. So let's imagine that we are interested in this construct of customer satisfaction. We, we, we can say it's with airlines. And that I actually could go inside people's heads and get their true level of satisfaction with a particular airline. I can't do that, but let's imagine I did and I wrote down their true satisfaction. And I did that at time one and I did that at time two. But because I can't do that, instead I administer an instrument. You talked about an eight-item instrument. I could even just give a single item, right? I could say, on a scale of one to ten, how satisfied are you with, what's your favorite airlines? Ooh, Southwest Airlines. All right. A flying cattle car. All right. So on a scale of one to ten, how satisfied are you with Southwest Airlines? So now I have everybody's true score, which I got by magic, right, or invasive surgery. And then I have their measured score. Now imagine I did a regression. At time one, I actually regressed your true satisfaction on your one to 10 score of customer satisfaction. 
I would get out of that regression the things that we always get out of regression. I would get out an intercept. I would get out a slope of the relation between your true satisfaction and your measured satisfaction. And then I would have a certain amount of error variance from this whole thing. And then I go do it at time two. I get your true satisfaction, your one to 10 score. I do the regression. And again, I get out an intercept. I get out a slope and I get out an error variance associated with that. Now, when I just have in my hand your score at time one and your score at time two, and I'm interested in comparing them, I don't know about all this other stuff that's going on, this intercept, this slope, this error variance of how things are associated with truth. I just have a score in my hand. But the problem is that when I am comparing scores from time one to time two, when there are issues associated with those underlying parameters that we can't see, it can really mess things up. For example, if someone wanted to do something as simple as compare the mean at time one with the mean at time two, like a little repeated measure design or a paired samples t-test, they've got the mean of the 1 to 10 scale score at time 1 and at time 2. In order to make a meaningful comparison between those two things, in other words, in order for the mean difference to be reflective of some underlying difference in true latent customer satisfaction, a lot of things have to hold. Intercepts from those two little regressions that I mentioned would technically have to be equal. The slopes would technically have to be equal for you even to make a mean level comparison. Now let's imagine that you are interested in thinking about growth models and individual differences in growth, variance in growth. Oh my gosh, in order to be able to make statements about that, you're going to need to have equal slopes of the relations of those measures to their true underlying things, equal error variances. So even to do some very, very fundamental questions, you need a lot of magical things to hold that you can't possibly know about in this particular scenario. La, 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 la. I can't <laughs> hear you. Sorry, Greg, you're breaking up. La, 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 la. If you look out the left side of the plane, you can see. <laughs> you will see we don't have a wing. <laughs> One thing I like a lot is to go back to early days of conversations and see where researchers were talking about some of these things before we even had a quantitative methods framework to think about it. Yeah. And one of those that I really like is a paper from 1976, Gollum Busky, Billingsley, and Jaeger. We'll put this on the show notes. But they introduced in a developmental psychology framework what they called alpha, beta, and gamma change. Mm -hmm. And they were only talking conceptual, all right? This was still 15 years before Bill Meredith even talked about measurement invariance in CFA. Right. But very briefly, think about these things as we're thinking about modeling change over time and how it applies to whatever it is you study, whether it be child development, whether it be education, whether it be health, whatever. Alpha change, they say, and I'm going to quote directly, alpha change involves a variation in the level of some existential state given a constantly calibrated measuring instrument related to a constant conceptual domain. First, that's just a lovely sentence. But second, I really love some of the words in there. So variation in the level of some existential state. So when you live out in the world, whatever it is that you're studying. Mm -hmm. But it's given constantly calibrated measurement to a constant conceptual domain. So nothing is changing over time right? That's kind of the weight. You have weight at time one, weight at time two, it's constantly calibrated, and it's the same conceptual domain. Well, then they move to beta change. 
This involves variation in the level of some existential state. All right, so think about the construct. That is, what are you studying? All right, some existential state. But it's complicated by the fact that some intervals in the measurement continuum associated with a constant conceptual domain have been recalibrated. Mm-hmm. All right, what that means is your conceptual construct is the same, but you're now using potentially a different ruler yeah. at time one and time two. And then they go on to what's called gamma change. All right, and this is a redefinition or reconceptualization of the domain. A major change in the perspective or frame of reference from which the phenomena are perceived or classified, which is taken to be relevant in some slice of reality. All right, what that means is the very thing that you're studying changes over time. And let's jump back to 1963. Oh. Neither of us were alive at this point. I I was. (laughs) You were in 63? Wow. I was a Kennedy baby. I think that you were wealthier. I... (laughs) And better looking, but okay, never mind. (laughs) But a guy named Bearwriter said, when scores on a test are observed to change, how can one tell whether it is the person who have changed or the tests? Once it is allowed that the pre-test and post-test measure different things, it becomes embarrassing to talk about change. There seems no longer any answer to the question, change on what? So here's what we don't worry about that I think we should. We have a million-dollar data set. We have a year of analyses. We use a scale score in our latent curve model, and we write a beautiful discussion about individual variability and developmental changes of anxiety over time when there's a very strong possibility that that growth that we observed is not growth in true anxiety, it's a shock absorber because you screwed up measurement, and that's what you're modeling. Yeah. So in the context of the example that I had, alpha change from time one to time two in customer satisfaction would be change in latent customer satisfaction, right? My true inside-my-head customer satisfaction. That's what we're really hoping for. With regard to beta change, imagine that it's the case, though, by time two, we are measuring it differently, right? Where in your bathroom scale example, if by time two, we didn't just use the Costco scale anymore, oh no, we went and bought a fancy scale, that would be concerning, right, if we have now changed the quality of the measurement we have. In the context of the example that I had with regard to customer satisfaction, actually, you can be using the exact same instrument, but how people interact with an instrument can change, right? So (laughs) I'll give you an example. I thought about how I liked airlines on a scale of 1 to 10, and I understood customer satisfaction on that particular scale until I flew Spirit Airways. (laughs) After I flew Spirit, how I viewed the scale from 1 to 10 was entirely different. Every other airline became an 8, 9, or 10. Spirit Airlines, the cargo hold is our first class. Now, the funny thing is, is that a lot of times in longitudinal studies where we have some treatment, some intervention, some developmental thing that's going on, it can actually change not the underlying construct necessarily, but it can change how we interface with the measurement that we have. And that makes it hard to get back to the construct itself. And with regard to gamma change, that's where the construct itself is changing. And 
If my whole understanding of customer satisfaction with regard to airlines is different, that construct itself, that's really a problem. And you might say, well, when does that ever happen? Well, longitudinal studies and developmental phenomena, when you're trying to understand processes that are going on, let's say in kids over time, How do you even know the construct means the same thing at age three as it does at age seven, as it does at age 11, right? That's a giant leap. And so to be able to pull these things apart is absolutely critical to have any trust at all in the kinds of longitudinal statements that we make when we're trying to do some sort of growth type investigation. So any kind of growth model, whether it be done in a multi-level framework or an SEM as a latent curve model, imposes. It doesn't just kind of prefer or it would like or come over for dinner. Oh, no, no, you don't need to bring anything, but it's kind of (laughs) expecting a bottle of wine. (laughs) It imposes alpha change. Mm -hmm. That is that you have the same calibration and people are responding to those measures in the same way at each time point. And any observed change in your data is reflective of true change. That if your mean goes up in depression, that is change in true internal truth as God sees it depression. Now, I study child development. A very common item is cries easily. Mm -hmm. That is much more common behavior at a younger age than it is in an older age. Now, if we just rock back and forth and say some score, some score, some score, and we add up six items that includes cries easily for five-year-olds and seven and nine and 11 and 13, that item is actually operating differently across time. Kids are aging out of that. But if we don't respect that in the measurement, it may look like depression is going down. Well, it might be, but it might also be because we've conflated that with this natural aging out of cries easily because you don't cry because you're forced to eat your broccoli anymore. Mm. Now, when you move into adolescence, cries easily can be a real indicator of depressive symptomatology. When at five years old, it's a really good indicator of being five years old. Right. So just know when you strap on your saddle in the morning to a growth model, you are imposing alpha level change as your assumption underlying your measurement. And it's very easy to see if that were your only item. You said, we're going to measure depression and we voted on this item, cries easily, right? You can see how horrible a decision that would be. But even when cries easily is melded in with other things, as you described, right, added into six other things, it is contributing differently. And you say, well, I would never do that. You do that every time you like administer a math test that has the same items at three points in time. And there are some items that are no longer really getting at the math skills that you want. Well, you just threw that into the total with everything else. So we do this all the time. Even when we think of something as a single score, when it's an aggregate of things and the different pieces, any of those pieces contribute differently, this problem exists. I like that you used we, because this isn't a holier-than-thou, you people out there need to be doing. I have never published a latent curve model with a multiple indicator latent factor where we evaluate these things empirically. I cut out the middleman and go right to a mean or a sum or a proportion, and there are two reasons for that, I think. One is there's kind of a pay it forward, which is that's how I was taught how to do it. Mm -hmm. 
But the other thing is, often our models and our samples and our measures don't support our ability to estimate the kind of model that we want to formally test these things because we can't afford that car. I was in a faculty meeting, and in my whole life, I've never really bought a car for myself. Hmm. I mean, I've always liked my cars, but it's been a minivan, or I bought my mom's old Corolla. And I started thinking, at some point, I really want to get a car for myself. And I got online, and I was bored, and I had a dual monitor, and so I was following the meeting (laughs) intently. But for some inexplicable reason, I have always wanted a manual shift V8 turbocharged Audi A8. All right. For those of you who know cars, this is a monster of a car. The the Audi compensator. (laughs) It's not a red convertible midlife crisis. Whatever. I want black, blacked out, black rims. (laughs) Nobody can see me. And I want to play Joe Walsh at full blast and just open up on the highway. Yeah, they start at 98000 And I just clicked it off and said, my 18-year-old minivan is just fine. <laughs> Don't mind the dead raccoon smell. <laughs> so a multiple indicator latent factor estimated within the confines of a bivariate growth model on a sample of 220 people is my Audi A8. That's what we want, but we can't afford it. And so how do I get my 18-year-old dead raccoon minivan? Well, we turn to a mean score, a sum score, or a proportion score. But that falls back into our two-by-two is for some inexplicable reason, we don't worry about that at all. But oh my God, should we? Absolutely. And the funny thing you mentioned is that when you learned growth modeling, you didn't really think about this. You didn't really care about it. And the truth is, when you learned growth modeling, growth modeling was relatively new. And it was so freaking cool. People were trying to lay growth models on lots of things without doing the thinking necessarily about what has to be going on under the hood. But people started to realize what actually had been known prior to that. But again, I think we were a bit enamored of the method that it relies on some assumptions. And those assumptions can just mess those models up in an absolutely huge way. And you started to allude to a way to try to learn about whether or not we are meeting those assumptions. And that has to do with having some sort of longitudinal measurement model. If you could do a longitudinal measurement model, what would you do and how would that help you out? Well, let's take a brief trip down memory lane okay, and think about how we measure constructs. We have multiple episodes on construct validity, on factor analysis, on, yes, Virginia, there are latent Mm. variables. We've got a whole (laughs) bunch on this, so we're not going to redo those here. But I like kind of building up in first principles. So from a construct validity standpoint, we define what it is that we want to measure. Maybe that's reading ability. Maybe it's gratitude. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's height. Maybe it's weight. Mm -hmm. There are some things in a rarefied atmosphere that we just need one item for. So if you have your fancy pants Audi A9 bathroom scale okay. <laughs> and manual <laughs> manual turbocharged V8, uh, nice. it's a nice. monster, Hancock. You should see this thing. It's a monster. <laughs> we can just have one item. 
Mm-hmm. It's reliable. It's valid. It doesn't change over time. It doesn't change over group. You get on and you have your reading. All right. Rarely, if ever, do we have that in the kind of things that we do. So we have multiple items. So if we want to assess reading ability in six-year-olds, mm-hmm. we give them a little paragraph and we ask some questions about it. So now we have 10 items. All right. And we don't have a single pure item. We have a multiple indicator latent factor. Now, those indicators are related to the latent factors through things that we call loadings, factor loadings. Each indicator has what we call an item intercept and a residual. And then we infer the existence of this underlying latent factor. This throws a lifeline back to what you described a few minutes ago of what if you had the true score Mm -hmm. and you predicted the item? That's exactly that. But now we have a multiple indicator latent factor that allows for a whole bunch of really important things. Not the least of which is items now are allowed to have measurement errors. So it incorporates unreliability. But equally importantly, as each item is allowed to relate to the underlying latent factor, potentially in a different way. Some items have higher loadings, some items have lower loadings. We're allowing for differential salience in the relation between the items to the underlying factor. So we say, oh, now we're back to flexing in front of the mirror, which we decided we're just too old for that. And we just were embarrassing everybody. You decided that for you. Yeah, no, that's true. And dude, is there a Zoom filter to put a shirt back on you? Because I would pay abs. a little extra. Look at these abs. <laughs> All right. Picture in your mind's eye that multiple indicator latent factor at a single time point. And so now just do select all, copy, mm-hmm. <laughs> and go paste, 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 paste for time one, time two, time three, time four. Now we have four latent factors, each of which is defined by 10 indicators, 10 factor loadings, 10 residual variances, 10 item intercepts. Alpha change says the factor loading for the first item is equal at all time points. Mm-hmm. The item intercept is equal at all time points. Alpha change actually imposes the residual variance is equal at all time points. It's just pace, 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 pace. The total equality of those we call strict invariance, we tend not to need to worry about the item residuals. We can kind of just let them free to be you and me often. (laughs) It doesn't bias anything and it increases the risk of whack-a-mole. And so we just ignore that. But what we talk about is what Bill Meredith in a multiple group setting called strong invariance. That is the factor loadings are equal. Now he talked about over group, but here we're generalizing to over time. Mm -hmm. And the item intercepts are equal over time. When you can bolt those things down, then we can fit a growth model to the underlying latent factor and say, ooh, I observe mean differences, I observe variance differences, I can explain the covariances among the latent factors. You can only do that when you have strong invariance over time. Yeah, I mean, unless we don't, right? I mean, (laughs) when you have that item cries easily as an indicator of depression and you have it at a young age, but then you have it up there at an older kid's age, the idea that every loading is the same across time, the idea that every intercept is the same across time, strong invariance, I still find unrealistic. 
So now if we are in the world where we only form aggregate scores, total scores, average scores, and we formed an aggregate of those 10 items that included cries easily, as Patrick already really nicely described, that can mess everything up. But now we have an opportunity to get the information that cries easily has to offer in terms of informing us, at least to some extent, about depression, but maybe not requiring that it be exactly the same quality of measure at different time points. So in this framework, we have the opportunity to try to understand things from a partial invariance standpoint. And this brings us to hang them all and let God sort them out, right? (laughs) At the extreme, Mm -hmm. you can have a 10 indicator latent factor. All you need is one indicator that is truly invariant over time. And you can let all the rest be free. Let them have their own loading. Let them have their own intercept. Go nuts. Rent a van. Go to Orlando. Orlando? What happens in Orlando stays in Orlando. You can do better than Orlando. Come on. All right. So the nine loadings and nine item intercepts at each time point pool together. They rent a panel van and they go to Fort Lauderdale and leave item one to hold down the fort with the equal loadings and the equal intercepts. So that might be the equivalent of the Audi A9 turbocharged scale Mm -hmm. that you have this one item that's truly invariant. You're absolutely right. All we need is one item. We don't need complete invariance over all loadings and all item intercepts. The problem is we don't know what that damn item is. That's right. And so the hang them all and let God sort them out is screw this. I'm going to make all of you be equal, Mm -hmm. and some of you might not be, and I'm hoping that maybe it's only a little bit not, but rarely if ever does that hold in practice. So that moves us into partial invariance, and we're not going to delve into this here because of time, but we can do a series of likelihood ratio tests. We can look at modification indices, but we can build a case to say, well, what are the minimal number of equality constraints that we have to have? in order to establish that there's strong invariance or partial invariance. And here's the long con so that we can make inferences about means invariances and covariances of the latent factors over time. That's what we're trying to do, is to say there's this average trajectory, there are these individual differences in this trajectory. We can only make that inference validly if we're able to anchor down this measurement over time which rarely, if ever, do we do in practice. Yeah. So I like this model a lot. It can be a heavy lift, this thing that is called a second-order growth model or a curve of factors model. I like the idea behind it because it has the ability to potentially help you diagnose what's going wrong, potentially help you figure out which items are not behaving consistently, not invariant over time. But as you say, it's technically not possible to locate where it is, so you have to have (laughs) a little bit of theoretical belief that, ooh, this is my Audi. What number? What A8, model? dude. If A8. You, the A8 is my midlife crisis car. The A9 is our scale that we're using for weight. Okay. You don't even listen when I talk, do you? I stepped out for a minute. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we can't really know which at minimum one is our Audi A9 that is going to be that anchor item. But the idea is that we at least have a framework to try to get a sense of where the badness of it might be coming from. And that badness of it could be coming in the form of constraints on loadings that really shouldn't be constrained over time and constraints on intercepts that shouldn't be constrained over time. 
And make no mistake, if we impose those constraints on things that shouldn't be constrained, then we have a major whack-a-mole problem. If we constrain the intercepts or we constrain the loadings when they shouldn't be, no place to go but up. And in this case, up means right into the growth model that we have. Could I drunkenly punch you in the face? (laughs) Would you? We've talked about this before, but when you compute a mean score or a sum score, you are actually imposing a measurement model. And that measurement model is for your 10 indicators at time one, all the loadings are one and all your residual variances are zero. At time two, all the loadings are one, all your residual variances are zero. All right, this is whack-a-mole. Yeah. When you have a mean score, you almost couldn't impose a worse <laughs> measurement model on your items is that all items load equally on the factor with no measurement error at every single time point. Holy cow, somehow the freaking moles got a keg of Coors Light and drove to Fort Lauderdale. (laughs) What should we be deeply worrying about that we don't? You compute a mean score or a sum or a proportion. It holds for all of these. And you slap that beautiful muscle-bound, glistening, latent curve model on it. And you write that it was the best of times, it was the worst of times discussion section. You might have fit an incredible representation of blowing measurement invariance over time that has absolutely nothing to do with the underlying construct. Oh, yeah. And so the second order model that we're talking about has some glimmer of, first of all, being able to have the items have different loadings on their own factor. Second of all, some having different loadings across time and intercepts as well. So there's some potential to diagnose these problems. It's not a perfect system, but it's not awful. But yeah, I love what you said about the moles with the keg of Coors. It's exactly what would happen. I already see the artwork for this episode. You know what? Greg spends more time on the artwork than we do on the content of the podcast. We just had a post on Twitter by Wes Bonifay where he was kind of dissing the art, the crab artwork for exploratory structural equation modeling. So we have a division of labor and Greg does all the artwork. I don't touch it. And Wes, my response was, I think it's really good. Disturbing, but good. <laughs> So, yeah, you could not design a worse model than what the mean is imposing on the data. And Greg is raising a really neat point because, again, not only do we have this similarity of items across time, but it allows differential weighting of items within time, right? All the advantages that we have in our latent variable models anyway. So the example I've used before is if you have two indicators on a depression subscale and one is sometimes I feel lonely even when I'm with my friends and the other one is I often fantasize about ending my life. Mm -hmm. A mean treats those as equally indicative of the underlying construct, and it's immutable to the passage of time. That's horrible. That's horrible. Yeah. But let's pan back, right? We're going to do the Vaseline panning back shot and say, okay, but let's be practical about it. I can't afford my turbocharged V8 Audi A8. Well, at least if I want to send both my kids to college. (laughs) But what do we do on one end of the continuum is doing the full-blown multiple indicator measurement model. 
The other end of the continuum is just cram them in a box that we call a mean and just pretend that that doesn't exist. Let's talk about, all right, from a practical standpoint, how can we address this? Yeah, so there's what you wish for and what you can actually do. And honestly, what I would wish for is to have the ability to do one of these multiple indicator second order growth models where I can assess, at least as best as I can within the limits of model identification, the various potential non-invariances that I have. The more items I have, the more of an absolute beast that would be wonderful to try to get at where there might be inequities with regard to items operating as indicators of factors, which interestingly, that actually provides some insight into what I would maybe want to do if I were to form scores. But if I could form scores, I'll tell you what, I really wish I could form some scores because this model is so complex with so many moving parts. Is there a way that I could move back into just a scoring domain while taking advantage of this kind of information? And here's the grand irony. You say, okay, I listen to these two knuckleheads prattle on ad nauseum about this measurement stuff. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to estimate a longitudinal CFA mm-hmm. in its native form. I'm going to evaluate invariance, and then I'm going to use that to inform my scale scores. Well, here's the irony. If you can do that, odds are you can actually just go ahead and add the latent curve model directly to the CFA. Yeah. Because weirdly, sometimes those models are actually easier to estimate than the CFA is because you have fewer Fewer parameters. parameters. (laughs) Yeah. So there's this weirdness of if you can evaluate measurement invariance to ascertain the adequacy of your scale score, hell, you're all already in the place where you can estimate that. Yeah. So what it becomes is how do we do better than the mean score when we can't afford the full-blown second-order measurement model? Mm -hmm. And maybe what we need to do is go to CarMax and look at a five-year-old Audi (laughs) that is not turbocharged and it's an automatic (laughs) and it's like, okay... Well, what is that five-year-old Audi A4? Please, an A4. (laughs) Picture in your mind's eye, you have five latent variables, 10 indicators per latent variable over five time periods. What Bauer and colleagues and I have done in the past is to say, all right, let's randomly pick from each person one time point. Mm -hmm. So each person walks up to the counter and you randomly say, all right, first time point, third time point, fourth time point. Everybody has randomly one time point selected. This actually, we did not develop ourselves. It's out of the old days of item response theory of what's called forming a calibration sample and scoring. And for you IRTers, you're like, yeah, no, duh, that's a calibration sample. (laughs) So we take one time point. Then we fit a single latent variable with 10 indicators, but we use MNLFA, Moderated Nonlinear Factor Analysis, where among other covariates we might consider we have age. Mm -hmm. And so if we have age 5, 7, 9, 11, 13, we have age, and we go through the full MNLFA. And we look at age differences in loadings, item intercepts, variances, means... And again, maybe we have biological sex, maybe we have ethnicity, but we fine-tune what, again, for IRTers is differential item functioning, and we get a final scoring model on this calibration sample, and then making some strong assumptions, we then use that to score at each of the individual ages. And we've written three or four or five papers on this. We'll put this in the show notes. The punchline is, is that's better than a mean model. 
It's not as good as the native model, but there's a caveat to that. The scoring model is only as good as the proper specification is. Did you get the right differential item functioning? Did you get the right effects? Now, this is no different than did you get the right equality constraints on invariance, but is it properly specified? And here's what I'm becoming more cautious of. Is there so much sampling variability where you're starting to overfit to the characteristics of your particular sample? Mm -hmm. So your loading is 0.72, but if you were to do a thought experiment and redo it, it comes out to be 0.48. And if you redo it, it comes out to be 0.85. I think this is an area in need of additional research in model building and variability. But what you do in the long con is you do do a latent variable measurement model, you get better scores than the mean, and then you take those scores back to the latent curve model and fit it as you would to a scale score. So it's kind of the Audi A4 of measurement is you've worked in this potential invariance over time, but it's still not a native latent variable model. Yeah, I'll tell you one thing I like about that and then one question or possibility. The thing that I like about that a lot is that when you assess one of the second order models, you know, the models with the full-blown measurement model embedded at the first tier, your assessment of the fit of that model is going to be wildly driven by what's going on in the measurement model. Just so much action in that particular part of the model. Whereas if you fit a model with individual scores at each time point, the fit of that model is really all about growth, not just about measurement stuff that's going on. So I like the idea of coming back to a score if it's a good score, because then the focus on the fit of the model is really about the functional form of growth. So I like that a lot. The thing that is a question for me is when you said you randomly took a time point for each individual, what if you did that a bunch of times? What if you did another one where you took a different time point for people, another time point, and got a sense of how, I know we're still operating within the same sample, but then got a sense of how much noise there might be in each of your score estimates that you got from these different configurations, and would there be a way to get something that you have even more trust in? Does that make sense? It does, and we did that in a limited way, Mm -hmm. is to make sure that we weren't doing irreparable harm to the scores. We, in a couple of papers, drew a second and even a third and repeated it, but not as you would like in a multiple imputation. So one thing that I am excited about is do that 20 times, Yep. do it 100 times, and take the mode of the distribution of the scores that you get. And you very much have kind of like taking, you know, the mean of a posterior distribution of scores. And indeed, that is not far off from how plausible values are done within the item response theory. There's a lot of overlapping ways that we can do this. You know what worries me more in this? Hmm. When we take that randomly drawn time, we no longer have the item residuals where if you have, I feel lonely even when I'm amongst my friends at time one, the residual to that is going to correlate with the same item at time two and at time three. And when you only take one time period, those don't exist. And I worry about those covariance moles because if you don't build in those residual covariance over time, they're going to get pushed into the latent growth factors. And those covariances among growth factors play a really important role in what we're doing. 
That's my bigger worry. Right. So right now, there are already two very cool methodological possibilities here, one with regard to multiple imputation around the scoring, the other with regard to either just the robustness to this kind of covariance that you're sweeping under the carpet at the item level, or clever things that we might be able to do with that that we haven't thought about. Could I punch you in the face again? (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) On top of all of that, there are different ways of computing these scores from a factor-based model. In an IRT kind of framework, there are EAPs and MAPs. Mm -hmm. In a factor analytic continuous is their regression-based scores, their Bartlett scores, their constrained covariance scores. And we thank Scrondle and Locke 20 years ago for scaring the living (laughs) crap out of us because the best score that you can obtain depends upon how you're going to use it in a later model. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate that. Awesome. And this is a topic that is a hotbed of dissertations and F32 applications and novel research, which is... What are the downstream effects of ignoring this in latent curve models? How can we evaluate it given our data? And if it exists, how can we build that in to try to mitigate biases when we use these scale scores in more complicated models? I think you can just go out to the dissertation idea tree and shake it, and half a dozen things are going to come out and pick up the one that falls nearest you. And that's a really interesting research project in longitudinal invariance and scoring in growth models. Great. So this falls in that cell of the two by two of things we don't worry about, but we really should. Speaking of which, Greg. Yeah. How are your taxes coming? (laughs) The truth is I have a tax guy, the same tax guy I have had for 27 years, and he's not returning my emails right now. So I am getting worried. There you go. All right, thanks, everybody. And if you got anything out of this episode, remember, follow your blocker. (laughs) All right, take care, everybody. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they go to help inspire personal alpha change. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message, find organized playlists and show notes, listen to past episodes, and other fun stuff. And finally, you can get cool Quantitude merch, just in time for summer, like shirts, mugs, stickers, and spiral notebooks from Redbubble.com, where all proceeds from non-bootleg-authorized merch go to DonorsChoose.org to help support low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast that you wish would experience change. Any change. Please? Just a little... And in the spirit of alpha, beta, and gamma change, today's episode has been sponsored by other types of change. Like, what would you call change that's different from change that occurred previously? New change. Get it? The Greek letter new? No? Okay, okay. What about if you decide to analyze growth, switching your data from long format to wide format? Then you'd have to make your data go through a row change. Huh? No? Well, and and then maybe your growth model worked so well You went for dessert to celebrate, and you ate a pie. Change? Ate a whole pie? Huh? No? Did that one make you exude a sigh? Change? Sigh? Come on! This is good stuff! We're gonna have to start charging you for this, which would be a fee change. Fee change? This is most definitely not NPR. If only Theta thought it was funny. Huh? Theta?